I really just um, had got my license merely to save commissions on my on my deals. But because of the unique multidisciplinary skill set I had developed as a lawyer, as a talent agent, as a designer, as a developer, I found pretty quickly that I was able to understand issues and communicate resolutions for clients in a way that most anybody else was unable. And, you know, my first year was a big year and I was, you know, I just kept going from there while at the same time um, specking homes. Welcome to Diggs Influencer Podcast, the Titans of Real Estate, the show that provides direct access to the real estate industry's top movers and shakers as they share invaluable insight on how to best navigate and succeed in any market. I'm your host, Warren Dow, founder and CEO of M3 Media and publisher of Diggs Magazine. Our next guest is a rare and distinguished breed in the real estate industry, who prior to becoming a top 10 realtor in the US, was entrenched in the Hollywood scene first as an entertainment lawyer, then as a motion picture agent at United Talent Agency, then as a luxury home developer that many A-list celebrities still call home today, and today as founder, president of the agency. It's an honor to welcome to the show, Billy Rose. Thanks, Warren. I felt like an endangered species bird or something at the beginning. <laughs> all those, all those prior accolades and and career, uh, you know, uh, categories, right? Yeah, yeah. I should have like little, you know, initials and you know, uh, <laughs> acronyms at the end of my name, but I don't. Other than That's JD, right. I don't really have one. So you're from LA. Let's go back to the beginning. Growing up, what was your childhood like? Um, I had a great childhood, actually. I had a younger brother. Um, we grew up in the valley. I um, I went to North Hollywood High, lived off of uh, Laurel Canyon and uh, Moore Park. Uh, rode my bike to school, you know, uh, Colfax Elementary, uh, Walter Reed Junior High, North Hollywood High. Went, you know, I'm an L.A.-born, you know, and bred guy. Um, I went to UCLA for undergrad. Uh, I was a nightclub promoter. I booked bands. I was a DJ. Um, and I really kind of, you know, I was in the nightlife scene, hanging out with a lot of people, going surfing during the days and playing a lot of poker at night. And, um, then I got all serious and I went to law school and I stayed in LA and went to USC. All right. We're going to get into that. Don't worry. Um, but what about like, what did your parents do for work? My mom, uh, has been a, uh, a working artist, uh, like oils and watercolors since she was 16. My dad owned a printing company, um, uh, printed brochures and manuals and advertising. Um, we had actually grown up, I grew up until about third grade in Tarzana. And then we made the move, um, to studio city, um, in my third grade, I think it was, um, my dad's work was in Hollywood. Interesting. I, I have a commercial printing career, um, you know, moment in time as well. Yeah. Yeah. We were just a, you know, middle-class family, you know, leading, you know, had a nice little ranch house, um, with pool and, you know, my brother and I played a ton of sports. Awesome. What kind of sports? Like what, what was your go-to? Well, I was, uh, I was like a top baseball player. Um, but I could, even though I was like one of the, 
you know, initial picks every year. I never was on a wing team, so I decided I was going to take up a sport. In, uh, in ninth grade, I took up tennis. And um, by 10th grade, I was a ranked um, junior in Southern California in tennis. And, uh, you know, played tennis all through high school and then got uh, consumed in recreational uh, marijuana at the time. <laughs> and so uh, not much tennis for me. <laughs> then, yeah, that took, that took over. That that's, leads me into my next question. What kind of trouble did you get in, into when you were a kid? And so that was probably a good start, right? Yeah. Um, you know, not a ton of trouble. I think not because I wasn't wreaking trouble, but mostly because my brother would be the one who would get busted or caught. Um, I think I was better just evading trouble. But I, you know, I was in the nightclub world, you know, for probably from like 18 to 23 or so. And, you know, we were out late and, you know, cavorting and having fun. And, you know, fortunately, no, no bad accidents. Yeah. <laughs> so did like early on, even before you started your nightclub stuff, like, did you have any like, hey, I want to be this when I grow up? Like, did were you thinking in those terms at all? Or was it just all, hey, I'm young, I'm just gonna let it, let it go, like whatever happens, you know, kind of a thing? Um, no, I was, I was fully guided, you know, uh, good Jewish parents, you know, good Jewish mother. My mom kept telling me, you know, you need to be a doctor or a lawyer. And, um, I get queasy at the sight of blood. So my only option really was to become a lawyer. Um, once I realized I wasn't going to be a pro tennis player and, um, you know, so I was always going to go to law school. Um, I was taking, you know, poli sci and sort of pre-law classes in college, knowing I was going to go to law school. Uh, I interned for a law firm in college. Um, and I wasn't sure what kind of law I wanted to do, but um, having grown up in LA and having a lot of friends who were celebrities and such and, 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 and athletes, um, it just seemed the natural way to go was to be um, an entertainment and sports lawyer. Um, so that, that was that pathway for me. How long did that last? Um, well, that I did for 10 years, actually. I um, um, got in, you know, I was number one in my class by hook or by crook. And um, I was able to get into a top firm and had some great clients and really loved doing that. Um, at one point, I broke away, started a firm. Um, and then four years into that, realized I didn't have the right partners to really get to that next echelon level um, where I wanted to be. Um, and I started to try to find other partners to start a new firm. I couldn't really get that right group of people. Um, and along the way, I got recruited to become a talent agent at UTA, um, which um, seemed like a good idea at the time. You know, in retrospect, I think I didn't really understand what a, a talent agent did. And, um, you know, I worked at a, uh, where I started my law career basically was at a firm called Gang Tire, Raymer and Brown, who were kind of known as being the lawyers for lawyers. If you were a top exec and you were a lawyer, for example, you would want them to represent you. And, you know, the, the motto of the firm, which dates back to the twenties was that not only would you not co commit an impropriety, you would not even commit the appearance of an impropriety. And, um, you know, so it was a little, counterintuitive for me to understand going from that, you know, don't even get close to the line to being rewarded for lying, cheating and stealing when being a town agent. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. So I had difficulty reconciling those two. Philosophies. Those are, those are, yeah, definitely. Um, 
and going in opposing directions, right? Yeah. So how long was the talent gig? Um, how many years did you do that? I did that for five years. Okay, five years. So I'm just trying to get your timeline. So 10 years, entertainment lawyer, five years. So you've been entrenched in entertainment. Yeah. You've got a ton of connections, I'm sure. Hollywood's, you know, pretty insular, right? Like, once you know this person, you get to know this person, it's kind of like the that network lights up pretty quick, right? Well, it's a, it, I mean, you know, particularly as a talent agent where, you know, you get paid for introducing two people who already know each other. You know, so it's, it's your currency are your relationships. Right. <clears throat> Truly a relationship business, as they say. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, that will, I'm sure we'll get to this later, but, you know, that certainly was a huge foundation for, you know, my, my success today. For sure. And you, and you're an interesting, when I say distinguished in the in introduction, I really mean that because, I mean, your pedigree is like, you've, you've done some very interesting and difficult um, and complex things to, to build your foundation of knowledge, yeah. um, which is really impressive, really impressive. Um, so I, in the early days, is, is it true? Did you work with Crosby, Doe and, and Mosler and those like in the, is that your first real estate gig? No, I actually started at Westside Estate Agency. What happened, WVA, what happened actually was that um, um, I had uh, bought a house that I had um, remodeled in Carthay Circle. I had a girlfriend who had just graduated from uh, design school when I just finished the, with the remodel. And um, so we kind of did the interiors together and um the house got um when it was time to sell it you know it got published and i made a little bit of money and um you know my girlfriend at the time you know she didn't have a ton of experience but she was immensely talented and you know beautiful and fun to be around and, and it, you know she went on to become you know one of like architectural digests top interior top designers in the world um and um I learned a lot uh, about architecture and design um, through her. I think it was something in which I already had had a lot of interest. Um, and when that house sold, I then bought another house up in the Bird Streets, um, which was this like 7,000 square foot, like Del Taco meets, um, uh, you know, terrible, you know, stucco, best Western. And um, three stories, uh, but had great views. It had a you know big big pool, and it had a tennis court, and it was you know lower Bird Streets. Um, and at the time, you know, I had bought it for seven hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. It was like hundred dollars a square foot, and um, I think I had a gargantuan remodel of about a hundred thousand dollars, and um, I blew through that and spent two, and um, I had always been trying to get the woman across my bo my boundary line to sell to me. She had this big lot. And um, I kept saying, if you ever consider selling, you know, I'd love to buy your house. And one day she called me and she said, you know, I'm ready to sell. And so I had to, to in order to buy that house, I had to sell the, the bachelor pad one. And I, you know, so sold it for the unfathomable amount of money of $4.2 million, you know, $600 a square. Um, and at the time it was like, you know, the Mac daddy bachelor pad of, you know, 
the burgeoning bird streets, you know, it was like the, you know, the Marcus Pearson, the Minecraft house at the time. It was like, un, you know, oh my God, you know, how could this, you know? And um, I bought this other house. And when I sold that, that, that one for 4.2, I was at UTA. I hated being a talent agent. And I said, you know, I think I've got a knack for this. I've already bought my next house. Um, I'm going to be the male version of my ex-girlfriend. I'm going to be a developer, designer to the stars. And um, I went and I got my my broker's license. At the time, it was easier to get one because um, I was a lawyer. And I, so I didn't have to sit for two tests. I just had to pass with a higher percentage on that first test. And um, I called my friend Lauren Judd, uh, who was an agent at WEA at the time. And I said, you know, I've got my broker's license, you know, I guess I need to hang it somewhere. What do I do? And he said, well, why don't you come work at WEA? I went, okay, sure. Um, so that was, I, I really just um, had gotten my license merely to save commissions on my, on my deals. Um, but because of the unique multidisciplinary skill set I had developed as a lawyer, as a talent agent, as a designer, as a developer, I found pretty quickly that I was able to understand issues and communicate resolutions for clients in a way that most anybody else was unable. And um, though I had never really anticipated representing other buyers or sellers, um, people in the entertainment industry, and I, you know, I had a fairly large network, um, were approaching me and saying, hey, I know you're out there looking at you know, things for things where you buy or getting inspiration, blah, blah, blah. If you ever see something you know, that meets X, Y, and Z, um, you know, you can represent me. And, you know, my first year was a big year and I was, you know, I just kept going from there while at the same time, um, specking homes. That's awesome. And how many, so how many homes did you, or have you, do you still build homes and develop homes? You know, I kind of godfather projects now. I'd, I'd love to one day maybe get back into it. And, you know, I, what I'd really love to do is something like, you know, little, boutique hotel restaurant and you know maybe some residences or what have you um but i i i still love you know helping people with um getting their their uh, floor plan flow working and you know understanding where the real value is because you know this is not just something which you're going to enjoy but it's something which you're you know it's an investment for you so you know, don't build that two bedroom house, you know, we can make this other room functionally work its bedroom as well. You know, you'll have more value as a three bedroom house or, you know, if you can get that long driveway, let's do that. The approach is super valuable, you know, whatever, you know, that, that thinking might be so that when they go to sell it, they're going to maximize their returns. Yeah, that's key. That's, that's great. Great perspective as a developer. Um, what, what was the favorite, your favorite home that you built? You, you have a favorite? I do. Um, it's actually, it, it's not my favorite in terms of economics. Um, it, but it, it, it's a house that people today still say to me, it's probably the best house they've ever seen or their favorite house. Um, it's a house up in a little house gated community called Stone Ridge Estates. Um, and I bought it in May of 08. Um, not obviously very prescient at the time. And, um, it had performed it the time for me to be able to sell it on the way out at $20 million. And um, it, it's spectacular house on, you know, acre and a half, you know, 12,000 square foot house, um, really high ceilings and just a unique house that I remodeled and enlarged and, and I think made it sing. And um, then of course, you know, there was the Lehman crash and, you know, things, 
prices had basically declined to about 30% off the market at that point. I ended up selling it for 14, which is, you know, 30% right off my pro forma 20 mil. Um, you know, I lost a couple hundred grand, um, learned a lot, uh, had launched the agency right at the same time that I was taking the spanking on that one. Um, but you know, it, it's a, it's a great house. It's one I, I still, I went back to see it not that long ago and it, it holds up today. What kind of architectural style are you into? Do you have a favorite? Well, um, you know, I, 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 I appreciate contemporary lifestyle. I like open area. I like real lots of light. I mean, I really respond to light. I really respond to land. I prefer land to views personally. Um, you know, I've, I've done houses, you know, I've done craftsmen, I've done contemporary, I've done Spanish, I've done traditional. Um, to me, it's not as much about what the exterior shell is as much as how you live within it. Um, but the things that I gravitate towards today, and I think one of the reasons why I get a lot of clients is because I like kind of unique properties and can appreciate, um, you know, how it can make you feel and, and, and good design and architecture. Do you have a favorite all-time architect from the past, like a like Neutra or Wright? Who would you pick? Hard choice. Uh, you know, I think I I love I love Neutra, and I and I I have a great Neutra listing right now, and I've sold you know his case study house as well. Um, but you know, Neutra is, is a disciple of Wright, and I think I have to go with Wright only because um, the diversity of his portfolio is mind-boggling. You know, and when you go and you figure that he did, you know, the Guggenheim, um, you know, you know, some of his more modern stuff is kind of crazy. You know, when you go back, you know, from his Usonian and falling water type houses. So, you know, and then Barnsdall and I mean, his, his, his legacy is, is, I mean, he's probably the greatest architect of all time, but I think I would pick, uh, Lautner as my, um, that's my favorite. I mean, you know, he's so, and, and it's, this is, you know, I'm looking at sort of historical figures because there's some amazing ones, you know, more current. Um, but I think, you know, his mind was so outside of the box. Um, and some of the things he's done are so, you know, nobody would ever seen anything like that. You know, whether you're looking at the chemosphere, you know, or you're looking at Silvertop or you're, you know, you think about the Sheets Goldstein house and how he incorporated an air curtain no screens, no doors, and the air was designed to keep the birds and the pests out. That's crazy. You know, that's so incredible mind. You know, I, I, I love architecture. That's kind of why it got me into being a publisher and doing what I do into this space, um, learning along the way. But like, to me, and I'm a, I'm a musician myself, um, and to me, I always looked at architecture like music. And like, the old guys were like, you know, the early British invasions got like the stones and the kinks and the beat, like the guys that were just rewriting history. Like, what? What is this stuff? You know, and then Elvis and then like these guys broke so much ground um, and their headspace was so far above and varied than the norm at the time. Right. Yeah. It's mind blowing kind of. Yeah. I've got, you know, it's funny because you remind me of the parallels with architecture and music and um I have this listing of um, the Stan Frankie house. It's, it's maybe my favorite Neutra, actually. Um, it's in Santa Monica. And um, Neutra did this, you know, original, uh, original 3,000 square foot uh, little home. 
and um, the owner commissioned um, uh, Johnston Markley to add an ADU, thousand square foot structure. And I look at the original St. Frankie main house as the, um, the Motown classic. And I look at the Johnson Markley as this like remix of what that was because they really were referential to it. And I think it's one of the few cases where you see this, you know, extraordinary mid-century modern, you know, jewel box accompanied by another piece of architecture and where they actually harmonize and synergize. That's so cool. <clears throat> I was blown away. We had the opportunity to go interview Ray Cappy. Yeah. Rest in peace. Um, and at his house. And we got to shoot it and it was a feature story and all that. And I, we spent the afternoon with him. What a never forget that day. And um, and that home just was blew me away. Have you been inside that house or see, you're sure you've seen I love that house? That. I've seen numerous of his works and um, I've sold some of his works and I've met him. And he's, I mean, I, and I, his house may be my favorite of all his works. Yeah, he, for sure. It's like, it's so, it's, it's wild. And the, the dimensions on the floors, like kind of floating, like you don't, it's, 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 it's a, you, amazing. You, you really feel like you're within the trees. You're within nature. Oh, without for sure. Yeah, that, that was a sublime house. Yeah, it was amazing. Amazing, amazing. So I mean, we can't have a discussion today, you know, at least, you know, real estate without talking about the COVID-19 um, pandemic and how it's affecting the market. Um, what do you see? I mean, the, the great irony and, you know, it, this is a tragedy beyond words, right? What's happening in the world today. But the, in, the, the real estate industry and the stock market and like life was as grand as life could have been you like January, February 2020. <laughs> Like yeah. everything was booming and then like, boom, it like, what, what do you, what's your take on sort of where we at right now in, in this whole thing? I mean, it's, it, yeah, I mean, we were certainly chugging along, you know, things only looked rosy. Um, everybody kept expecting the recession, you know, we're beyond the normal seven years, you know, it's 10, it's 11, you know, when's it gonna, you know, when's the shoe gonna drop? And as you read, you know, financial, institutional pundits, projections, you know, not going to be this year. We're seeing another, you know, 12 to 18 months before, you know, and then this, of course, occurs. I think that the greatest difficulty today is understanding the ripple effects. Um, you know, I think, I think that, you know, as a real estate agent, um, you know, we're lucky. Um, they're like undertakers. There will always be new clients. And, um, you know, there, there are certain life events that cause the, the purchase and the sale of homes, you know, whether it be that, you know, divorce, death, birth, marriage, uh, kids, you know, going to about to go to school, kids, you know, going away to school, uh, downsizing, there's always going to be people who need to buy and sell. It's the discretionary market that I think is going to be most affected. Um, you know, what we're seeing right now is, you know, homes in the, you know, under 1415 range, they're flying off the shelf. I mean, there's bidding wars, there's a lot of activity, there's a lot of desire, there's a lot of demand. Um, and it, it, it kind of makes sense because, you know, they're locking in uh, their loans at great interest rates. And these are houses that people need to buy. You know, they're, they're, they're going for whatever their reasons are, but, you know, you get to the, you know, the 
20,000 square foot or the 15,000 square foot or the 50,000 square foot, you know, bachelor pad up in the birds or, or whatever. And not everybody needs those, you know, and there's a lot of them being built. Yeah, that's a want um, to have, not necessarily need to have, right? Right. And I just think that, you know, when you look at um, all of the issues that are accompanying our market at the moment, I mean, we've got trillions of dollars of wealth lost in the financial market. So people are feeling less, less wealthy. Um, you've got um, a number of industries that are going to be affected on levels that we haven't even yet begun to understand, you know, particularly industries that are within, you know, this submarket here in, in LA, uh, you know, we, we have a tremendous uh, variety of live entertainment, whether it's music or live theater, um, sports, you've got conferences, um, you know, you've got hospitality and hotels or cruise ships or planes or wherever there are aggregations of people where there's industries of people um, coming together, those are going to be affected, you know, dramatically initially. Um, and, and when those will come back, it's going to be hard to know, but that's going to make a lot of owners of companies feel, you know, less secure, less wealthy. It's going to, it's going to make a lot of um, employees feel less secure. They're going to end up with, um, you know, either th they're going to lose their job if they haven't already. They may not come back on. They may end up with, you know, lesser hours. Um, and um, and then you look at look at um, businesses, like restaurants. So, um, you know, restaurants. You know, I'm being told, and I'm, I've been ownership sticking in a number of restaurants, and I talk to the people that run them. They talk about how they're going to have to reduce the occupancy. Um, to like 50%. And the margins on restaurants are very small. So, you know, how do you make those businesses work if you have to, if you're going to be getting far less revenues because you have far less patrons? You then got to get the landlords to go along with, you know, this whole scheme. And the only way that works is if they want to go on, you know, like a percentage uh, rent. Uh, and then, you know, you have the ripple effects from that lesser, you know, demand or lesser ability to serve number of patrons, you know, fewer, fewer waiters, you know, less, less meat being ordered, less fish being ordered, less produce being ordered, less people driving those things, less, you know, linens, um, you know, the farms, the distributors, the, uh, you know, the, uh, there's it, we just don't even know, you know, where it, it how that ripples out. And, you know, you, you're already starting to see how, it's harder to qualify for a loan. If you're a self-employed buyer, I mean, it's your, the down payment is so high, it, you know, it becomes prohibitively, you know, expensive or more difficult. Um, which means by design, you know, there's going to be a, a, a lower level of supply. I mean, sorry, a lower level of demand because now fewer people can afford these higher priced product, um, which, is going to mean that there'll be more product available and um, you know it's all about supply and demand and I'm and I'm concerned that there's also going to be a number of developers who um, you know jumped into this gold rush of specs you know particularly higher end and you know now things aren't you know they're going to be have to holding for a lot they're going to have to hold for a lot longer or they're going to have to let it go for a smaller price or they're not going to have the deep pockets to be able to sustain and I think there's going to be some new, you know, 
uh, downward leaning comps that are going to affect the market. So I think, you know, there's a great likelihood, particularly at the higher end, that we're going to see discounted pricing just because there's going to be less demand. Um, there's going to be, you know, we, we know there was already a great amount of supply coming. Um, and I think, you know, particularly at that higher end too, you have a lot of buyers who they feel like there's a hole that they're going in. And is the hole five feet deep or is it 55 feet deep? And, you know, we, when are we going to get to know? I mean, you know, now we're hearing, of course, that um, stay at home in, in LA, you know, could be expended, extended in August. Um, when does it stop? You know, we, you know is there going to be another flare up? I think we're in the most volatile time of, you know, the current era, you know, post-depression era that we've ever seen. Yeah. And I think that buyers in particular feel like, you know, they're jumping into a hole. They don't know if there's a net underneath. They don't know if it's going to be five feet deep or it's 55 feet deep. And, and as a result, you know, markets, whether they're financial or real estate, they don't like, they don't like uncertainty. They don't like volatility. They like stability. They know where things are going, you know, even if it's just static. And I think it's really difficult to understand right now, you know, what, what is going to be our future? And, you know, we're still trying to figure out, I mean, there's so many industries that are within our marketplace here in, in LA, which are so prominent, you know, whether you're talking about um, live entertainment, you know, concerts, um, live theater, um, sporting events, you've got, you know, m movie theaters, um, hotels, conferences that all bring people together in mass. And those industries right now are pretty much on pause. Um, and, you know, that uh, movie production, TV production, I mean, what they're talking about doing as far as allowing those people to be working now are like going into quarantine as a pod, as an entire production before they go on, on location or before they go in, you know, into production. Um, you know, which means that basically if you're some, one of the higher level uh, performers or, or providers like a director of photographer or, or an actor or what have you, you probably have to go into uh, quarantine a little longer than the 14 days because if something comes up, they need to find a replacement for you because now they're locked in because they've got all these people who are quarantining at the same time. Um, we, we, we can't even begin to understand what the ripple effects of this are all going to be and it, you know one i've been looking at restaurants in particular because i'm an owner in a number of restaurants and i'm able to talk with a number of people on what how they're going to be dealing with this and you know restaurants are not a high margin business to begin with uh and i'm hearing that they're going to need to reduce their occupancy by about 50 percent and you know which that doesn't really work higher, right the entire economic model has to change it doesn't work yeah i mean it's a big component of that uh, and so you can't continue on the same rent, which means you got to basically work on the percentage rent probably. Um, and then, you know, how do you rework that situation on the landlord side with the lender? Right. It's, you know, so it's, it's, on and on. The ripple effects are crazy. You've got the meat purveyor, the seafood purveyor, this, the, 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 the drinks, you know, wine, beer, alcohol, soft drinks, everybody's providing and yet they're going to be providing less. There's going to be less hours. There's going to be, you know, owners who aren't feeling as profitable. They're not going to be extending themselves as great. It's just, we're moving into a time where people, 
you know, it's going to be harder to qualify for loans. It's very difficult to qualify for self-employment at the moment. You really have to come up with a, a large down payment for a lender to feel secure, which all of this means that there's going to be less demand. And when there's less demand, you know, you typically get an offset with greater supply, though you've had a lot of sellers who are holding their, their properties off, but there's going to be those sellers who are going to, you know, have to sell. It's going to be a sell of necessity. And, you know, whether that's coming from these cowboys, you know, who all jumped in for the gold rush on the spec market or somebody who just, you know, they've lost their job, they've lost their business and they've got no choice but to sell their only asset there's going to be some properties that are going to be, you know, let go at, um, at a number that's going to set a bad comp. And, you know, in the same way that when you're in an appreciating market, you know, those new, those new houses that are coming on the market, they're all standing on the shoulders of the prior sales. These are going to be the ones that are dragging down the following sales. So, you know, that's why I think there's a, there's a lot of stickiness in the market right now. There's, you know, there's not this momentum. I mean, again, at the lower end, you're seeing buyers who, you know, they need to buy it and they, they're locking in these great, you know, unprecedented low interest rates. So, you know, that market's going to be robust and, you know, there'll be a number of agents who will really kind of move into that market because that's where the flow is at at the moment. Um, but there'll always be sales, you know, we're like undertakers. There's always another client. <laughs> you know, what scares me and you talk about the, the trickle down, you know, the ripple trickle down effect, like you look at commercial real estate um, and the big box retailers, they were already downsizing and, and, you know, already feeling, you know, the effects of the, you know, Amazon, the new e-commerce economy before it got, you know, expedited and, and amplified with the whole COVID thing. Um, and now just like we're doing today, Billy, we're on Zoom. Otherwise, we'd be, I'd be in your office right now. We'd be doing this, right? So, like, we're, we're teaching ourselves how to do business a different way across every industry. Um, and I talked to one of my really good friends who works for a, a huge, huge um, international company. They spend, you know, tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars on commercial leases, right? And they've had to, stay, they've had to do the whole relearning. And they're like, we're not, we're not going back. Like... We're looking at it now. We're going to be saving, you know, gazillion dollars on on rent because we've figured out how to do it remote. Um, even with our customers, you know, we we figured out we don't need to fly to, you know, from from Orange County to Boston for a meeting. We can just we can just do it remotely and and save the time and money. You know. Yeah, I think that um, the world is going to change. Um, I think that the work at home has uh, has has gained a proof of concept and i think um marketplaces like la um you know and a number of others whether you know where where particularly when you're looking at major metropolitan cities um and you want someone who has the amenities and the retail and the nightlife and whatever that you know you get from a, a major metropolitan city um, LA is uniquely situated in that, you know, we're spread out we're, we have half the population of New York in double the square footage of land. And, you know, we're not, a, we're not a town, uh, like Chicago or New York or San Francisco where, you know, they're vertical cities that are, um, you know, built in towers where you get, you know, tens, if not hundreds of people 
all within the same, you know, structure going up and down the elevators in the same, you know, lobbies and common areas. And, you know, we generally are a single family um, marketplace where, you know, we're not sharing anything. And then, you know, when we leave our, you know, personal garage, we get in our little, you know, germ-free bubble that transports us to, you know, our next destination. Um, we're not getting in an Uber or a cab and we don't know who was in it before. We're not getting into, you know, a subway or other mass transit. And, and I think, you know, when you look at some of these people who have now demonstrated that they or, or, or been able to, you know, confirm in their mind that they're able to work from home um, and therefore can work anywhere, then, you know, what's keeping them in these major pet metropolitan cities where maybe they're not getting the benefits they always thought they were. And I think there's going to be a lot of movement, you know, particularly to the West, um, particularly to LA. Yeah, it's a great point because you don't, yeah, if you don't need to be there, um, and, you know, this is a, a tremendous alternative. I mean, single family with land, you know, and, and lifestyle combined, you know, so... I mean, if you got a shelter at home, you know, nice to have a pool, nice to have some square footage, nice to be able to get out in the natural air. Yeah. We had an outdoor movie night last night. It was fantastic. Oh, that's cool. Very cool. Well, the markets, we talked about how they were on fire before, you know, all the way up until the, you know, February of this year. And it seemed like, you know, even like the end of last year and the beginning of this year, LA was breaking new price records almost weekly. Um, I mean, the, the mega, mega homes, $100 million plus, there was like a half a dozen sales, right? Yeah, unprecedented. And so, and you still have these mega developments like, uh, you know, what's the one up in, the one, on what? the one? Yeah, it's the one. <laughs> I always screwed up. What's the one? The one? It's like, it's like, what's, where, what's your company? The agency. No, which one? The agency. <laughs> Who's on first? first? <laughs> what are those guys? I mean, is, is it, are those guys gonna get like when because that market was like you said you know it was standing on the shoulders of those comps even those those comps like you can't comp a playboy mansion kind of thing you can't that's not that doesn't live in the mls and in a cma world it's a it's a whole nother you know expertise and and thing um but do you think on the same level if those things sit or they're just completely getting slaughtered, what's gonna what's that gonna do to the market? Like, how much weight down is it gonna push? Well, you know, uh, you know, we 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 look at Reaganomics and the, you know the, the trickle down theory, and I think that applies equally so here. Um, you know, the one, you know, um, he was originally looking to get, I think, three hundred million dollars or five hundred million dollars. Five hundred million. Um, you know, look, uh, many times I've been proven wrong that something can gain, you know, or achieve a number that seems unfathomable, but, you know, I think in today's marketplace that, you know, seems more difficult than ever. I think Niall, uh, the developer of that property, you know, is, he's got his work cut out for him. And I think he's got, you know, more than just that property that he's got on the market at the moment. And, um, you know, like my house, you know, that I brought on the market in Stone Ridge when I, you know, thought I was going to make, you know, life-changing money. Um, you know, life doesn't always go as planned. And, uh, you know, whether it's those homes or another, there are going to be comps that are going to affect 
I think other markets. And as you, you know, when we became a, a 2000, a square market, you know, that was like crazy. And then we got to three and, um, I think, you know, they were outliers to begin with, but I think we're going to see fewer and fewer of those. And I think, you know, that the market's going to calm down in that regard. I think we're going to see less of these sort of sellers believing that they, you know, their, their house should be pitched or hitched to the, to the outlier star. Um, you know, what the market discount, if any, is going to be is, is really unknown. I, mean, I know a lot of deals are getting done where I have a deal right now in Brentwood Park. It's a seven and a half million dollar house. And we're basically getting pre-COVID money. Now, I think the reason for that is because it's a unique, it's a unique opportunity. And, you know, if it's something that's fungible, if it's one of these, you know, stucco and glass boxes, you know, uh, around the Beverly Center, um, where there's like another one sprouting each day, those become fungible. And, you know, that's again, a supply and demand issue. Um, you know, houses that are, um, you know, particularly heat, uh, rooted in history, um, with architecture, you know, whether it's a Neutra or, or a Lautner or, or something else of an acclaimed, you know, provenance, those will probably retain their value better. And I believe that, um, but, you know, at the same time, you can argue that the art world, for example, is going to get pretty hard hit. And, you know, um, the premium that great architecture gets from great architects is often because I look at them as like functional art. Um, and, um, you know, whether you'll get that premium for art these days or whether it's much a premium, we're going to have to wait to see. But, you know, to me, if it's, if it's a unique property um, that it's hard to replace particularly if you're going to be there for any extended period of time, um, you should be fine. I mean, uh, you know, the market will recover. The question is, you know, how long is it going to take? And maybe, Billy, it'll have the opposite effect where, you know, the home now, since we're literally, we're stay at home, it's taken on a new level of importance and meaning in our lives, right? Um, and maybe it'll have the reversed effect where people will go, hey, life's too short, man. Like I'm not getting any younger and this COVID shit's out there. Like I'm, I'm going to, I'm going for it. I don't need it, but I damn well want it right now. <laughs> I want the pool. I want the view. I want the, you know? Yeah. I, listen, I think, you know, we're going to see less travel, obviously. I mean, you know, Malibu rentals right now are like the hottest commodity. Um, you know, it's, it's staycation, it's stay at home, you know, really enjoying your space. I think we're going to see, you know, a change in, you know, maybe what is the, um, or what are the um, the amenities, the go-to amenities in houses? You know, I foresee like a his and hers, like offices with green screens and, you know, uh, mic'd rooms that you can do Zoom calls from. I think, um, you know, what, what became sort of the ubiquitous theater or media room, I think those are going to, you know, really become more and more ubiquitous because I think, I think movie theaters are going to go out of business to a large degree. And I think we're going to see the release of movies undertaken in a, in a different way. Um, and it'll probably be coming to your, you know, your home media room. And, you know, maybe you'll have your 10 friends over and everybody will pony up, you know, $10 or whatever that'll be. But um, I think that that's going to change a lot. And I think um, we may, you know, there may be a re a, a relooking at, um, the open floor, you know, the open floor plan concept, because I think, you know, as we're all contained in our homes with our kids and our extended families and whoever else, 
that um, you know we're all trying to escape each other, and maybe the open floor plan doesn't allow you that. So you know maybe it becomes convertible rooms where you know it's an open floor plan, but you can close it off if you want. Yeah, good point. So you know this whole new normal talk of the new normal. Um, you know, with this virtual open houses and brokers opens and what have you, and you know, sellers concerned, people coming through their house, and obviously all that stuff. Like, do you think, relative to the whole iBuyer model that was starting to gain a little traction, you know, obviously not in Beverly Hills and you know Malibu. It's it's in the homogenized, you know, Phoenix, you know, cookie cutter, you know, um, plan A, B, C, D kind of thing. But um, but do you think? that will spark something new in the iBuyer? Like if they get the technology right, if they get the 3D blah, 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 and the, the like, do you think we'll ever see a time and place where people are actually writing checks for 10 million bucks and never walking in the property or like? I think that the, um, that the current, the, the current, you know, tours, virtual tours aren't enough to really enable somebody outside, as you say, you know, the A plan, B plan, you know, mm-hmm. subdivided communities or, or the buildings where, you know, it's the, the, um, the A stack and the B stack, um, that housing is just too unique, particularly in LA where, you know, you might have a $2 million house next to a $30 million house next to a $10 million house. Yeah. And it all, everyone is different in its own way, in its own design, its own architecture, and how recently it's built, the ceiling heights, the way the light comes in, the view, the, the way the air circulates, the, the noise. Um, you know, I look at like, you know, if you were a buyer and, you know, you were, you, you know, you heard that La Mesa was the greatest street in LA and, you know, you got a $20 million sale across the street and you're looking at this one and it's $5 million and it looks great. And then you realize that the one you bought backs up to San Vicente and the one across the street overlooks, you know, Riviera golf course. So I think that, um, you know, there's, it's very difficult for someone to, you know, lay it, lay it out a bunch of money to purchase a luxury product and, you know, luxury, maybe a million and a half. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, without actually being inside of it, unless you're getting a smoking deal that, you, you know, you just know you can't lose on that. Um, and I don't think, you know, sellers want to be in that position of having to sell homes at, you know, significant discounts. Um, I think that, you know, I, I, I speak to a lot of sellers who say, you know, should we be doing a virtual tour? Um, you know, and honestly, I prefer you know, I, I get, I take over listings often and, you know, the, the, or I may have a new listing and, and the seller will say, you know, you've only got, you know, 18 pictures, you know, this other one's got 53, you know, yeah. we, we got to show what we're selling here. And I'm like, yes, to a degree, you got to show just enough to get somebody interested to come because exactly. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, oh yeah, I've seen that house. And I go, well, but you know, the way it opens up to the yard or didn't you think that? And they're like, Oh, well, I didn't actually see it, see it. I saw the pictures. I'm like, yeah, well then you didn't see the house, you don't, you know, and any good house is better in person. So, you know, unless you're trying to do, you know, discount brokering, I don't think, you know, until we get to, you know, virtual reality, where you really can't somehow experience that house in person you know, with the VR goggles and the whole thing. And, and, you know, you can 
fly through space like a, a you know a, a Google Earth kind of thing, and you're flying across you know the ocean to the and you land on the street, right. and you get to look both ways, and, and you get to you know hop over to your your market and your you know your restaurant, right. and it's just not the same. Yeah, no, I I agree. Um, it's interesting, but it'll be it'll be something to watch. So let's talk about the agency. What a great success story! Congratulations on all your success there. And today. A report just came out. Um, you guys were named, you were number 25 in the nation yeah. for brokerages. Yeah. Yeah. 5.7 billion in in, um, in sales, transactions. And uh, here's a stat that caught my, and I actually did the math because I was curious. Because um, I'm crazy like this, Billy. <laughs> yeah, like a fox. Like a fox. Um, you guys are listed, this is 2019, so I don't know where the number is exactly today, but it was 540 agents. Yeah. And... Um, so if you do the math, you guys hit like that's ten and a half million in volume per agent. Yeah, that's 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 awesome. That's a big big number. Um, I mean, it beats comp. I did the Compass, you know, sort of comp, and they're at six point. They're basically six point oh, six point one. Yeah, yeah. I I think you know of those brands, you know that um, are international or national or California. Um, and probably um, we have the highest per agent volume. And, and, you know, the reason for that's obvious or simple, which is that, um, you know, we're not, we're not a real estate play. We're not a WeWork where we're basically renting out, you know, offices and copiers and receptionists and conference rooms. We're, you know, we're, we're, formed somewhat on the philosophy and in the structure of like a law firm or a talent agency, which of course is my, you know, my upbringing, um, where we wanted to be an, a unified integrated organization where the organization was meaningful and it would be a credit enhancement to you as an agent, you know, and, it, and you know, having been at, you know, law firms and talent agencies, it, it seemed so counterintuitive, so anachronistic to me to get to, uh, you know, a brokerage and then, um, you know, be, you know, recommended to, you know, get your logo, your coat of arms, your website, your, your, you know, email. Um, and there's no way, you know, when being at, you know, UTA or, you know, at O'Melveny, you know, Myers or any major law firm or major organization of any site sort where, you, you know, I would be, you know, Billy at Rose Law or Billy at Rose Talent, that, to me seemed the, completely the wrong way to be going because you want to be associating yourself with something that is bigger than you, something that gets you in the door, that credit enhances, that gives you more credibility. Um, but, you know, somewhere, I think it's around in the eighties, you know, there was this shift in residential brokerage where in essence, the real estate agents uh, rebelled against the brokerages and they said, look, you know, these are our clients. We're doing all the work. This 50-50 split stuff, this does not work for us, you know, and, and the broker just said, you know, fine, you know, we'll give you, you know, 80%, but now you're going to be responsible for the marketing and the advertising. And the agents went, great, sounds great. I'm going to do that. And I, you know, I, I have this, you know, sort of mind's eye, you know, look back in history and I see that, you know, He's a Coldwell Banker agent, and he's putting together his ad, and um, you know he's all happy, and he's got you know it's his name, and you know, and um, he starts thinking, 
you know, wait a sec. This ad looks like every other coal banker ad that's ever been placed. But I'm paying for it. I need to get value from this ad because I'm paying. So what happened was you got basically the fragmentation of the brand. So now, you know, you get, you know, I was uh, Rosen Chang, you know, when I was at uh, WEA, when I was at Monster, um, when I was at, um, when I was at uh, Prudential and nobody knew I ever left. Everybody thought they were dealing with Rosen Chang and they just wanted to deal with Rosen Chang. And it didn't matter that I was at any of these other approaches because they would become meaningless. There was nothing that they were doing that was different. Um, and because they had encouraged the agents to basically be their own brand, now you've, you've lost all the synergies of everybody doing everything together. So when we started the agency, um, you know, nine years ago, um, I really wanted to, you know, change that and go to the way all other sort of major industry, major service industries work, which is, you know, it's an all for one, one for all. We're all mentoring each other. We're all lifting each other up. We're all feeding off of the successes that we all are having. And we're sharing, you know, we're collaborating, we're working together. And what that, you know, and I think one of the reasons why, you know, we're number 25, um, uh, you know, in, in less than nine years. And I, and I haven't looked at the list, but I'm, fairly confident that um, we're probably the newest to the list with the exception of Compass um, who you know, has you know, unfathomable amounts yeah. of financing. They, they, but, they know, purchased their, their share. They, they, right. yeah. yeah, I mean, we, we didn't purchase anybody. You know, we're not, we don't, you know, we're, we're small. You know, we're, we're in each marketplace. We're a boutique. We want the experts in each market. And that's why our per agent average is so high. We're largely a, you know, an experienced group of agents, but, um, you know, it's because everybody is uh, working together and everybody contributes their contacts to, um, you know, our newsletter. So our newsletter is now going out to 500,000 people or whatever it is now. Um, and you know, that's an extraordinary number of people to be able to be in contact with, you know, um, the average person, the average agent, has one to 2000 contacts, you know, so when you go up for a listing, when, you know, it's not being aggregated to everybody, um, you're basically saying to, you know, your seller client, you know, I'm going to get it out to, you know, in the, uh, you know, MLS caravan, I'm going to put it in the LA times, you know, assuming anybody does that anymore. Um, you're, and I'm going to, you know, e-blast it out to my sphere of influence of one to 2000 people. You know, I personally have a, a, a database of 15,000 people that, originates out of my um, entertainment days, but, you know, being able to reach out to a half a million people and then keeping one website where all of, you know, our inventory, all of our videos, all of our content, um, that's all going to one dedicated place. It makes it easier to find things. It becomes a one-stop shop, which is kind of like our, our PR department. Um, you know, you've got, we have, three people in PR who were all working on behalf of all of our agents. Um, and you know, if you're a journalist you know, working at the wall street journal, you know, do you want to, uh, call, you know, the 10 top agents in a market and hope that they're going to answer the phone, hope that they're going to have the information, hope they're going to call you back or call, you know, one of my you know, three PR people who 
are, you know, paid to sit there all day and answer that phone and make sure that, you know, like you and how we came together, um, they're there to say, you know, oh, you want to know, you know, what's the latest trends in garages today? You know, speak to Santiago or, you know, Ben Bellick's got this new or, you know, if you want to know if the Chinese are still coming or, you know, they know who knows what and they can direct you and, and get you the information you know and get you with the right people. So um, I think that's really been at the core of our success. And, it, and when you realize that um, people aren't, uh, you know, going off in their own offices and, you know, shutting the door and, you know, trying to compete with one another because, you know, when you're, when you're a company that has, you know, five or 10 or 25,000 agents, how do you distinguish yourself? You know, we're small by design, you know, and, and rather than compete with one another, you know, we're working to lift each other up. Two people are up for the same listing nine out of 10 times. They're going to say, let's do this together. And by the way, they're going to improve the odds because, you know, if you're up against, you know, uh, Larry, Moe and Jack, um, and then, you know, it's, it's Billy and Dana, you know, that's five people going up for the listing. If, if we become one of the, you know, Dana and I become one of those contenders, we're now twice the, you know, the veracity, so to speak. Um, and we're going against the other three. So uh, I've gotten a number of listings that way because we're, you know, we're making it easy for them to make a, a decision. I don't know. It, it's the, the model to me seems uh, obvious. And I, you know, I think it wasn't obvious through this. Sorry. Well, no, I wasn't. And, and by the way, go ahead. What's that? No, go ahead. <laughs> I, you know, it's it, that's just you know my, my experience. You know, coming from uh, integrated, unified organizations, and you know, it's it's what's been really rewarding and interesting to see is that um, you know you're only as strong as your weakest link. You know, it's one thing to be able to say you know rather than you know he sold the Playboy Mansion or you know he sold. Uh, case study, you know, 20. It's another thing to say, we sold it. And, you know, our ego here is checked at the door and we're all part of that same team. And, you know, we all can, can, you know, claim that success as a team. Um, The converse or the flip side of that coin is that um, if somebody's not doing something well, then they're impugning the reputation of all of us. So it's incumbent on all of us to ensure that people are doing things right and they're doing them well. And I see these groups get together, whether they're working through a mock listing presentation or marketing or just getting them up to speed on you know, the particulars on how to handle a particular client or transaction. And, you know, it's it's exactly what I went through, you know, as a young lawyer, as a talent agent getting the benefit of you know these mentors of these more senior experienced people um and we're incentivized to do that because it it redounds to the benefit of us all you know so that's like culture at any other place because you know you're all everybody's trying to be the number one agent there or the number one agent in this region or whatever and you know it's it's a zero-sum game you know where you know i can't be that if he is it's something i experienced as a talent agent Um, you know, if you have an action star, um, as one of your clients, you know, you, you see how other agents who have action stars want your client's movie because it's going to, you know, tarnish, take away the luster from their client and thus them. So it's like this constant feeling of, you know, um, 
people who who want to stab you in the back, who don't want you to succeed, who you know are trying to hold you down, rather than a culture and an atmosphere where people are excited for you and want you to succeed and, and have success. Well, this is what I was in, really impressed with with the agency um, when you started. We and we started our companies. I, I founded Digs in summer of two thousand and ten. Yeah. So we've kind of grown up together, but unfortunately, or fortunately for you guys, you guys are a lot bigger than us, <laughs> Curtis, but I'm just joking. Um, but what I, what really impressed me is um, you guys, you know, that, that word disruptive is, is used way too loosely, right? In, in every vertical and every space. But you guys truly, in my mind, were one of the first true disruptors um, in the space in the sense that the agency sort of became this little mini movement. Um, and it was like, it was cultural based. It wasn't like shiny, shiny stuff and the shiny new office on this. And the, it wasn't any of that shit. It was like, it, it was that, that belief system that, that you, you had fostered um, one for all. Here's how we're going to do it. You know, everyone put your hands in. Like it was, and like you said, that, that, was, that's, that was rare in nine years ago. And it's still rare today. <laughs> You know? Yeah, I don't, you know, particularly on any platform that's not just a local based brokerage, um, I don't really think it exists anywhere else. And, you know, it, I'm even today, even maybe even more than ever, you know, when I'm on these Zoom calls with, you know, 10 or 20 or 300 people, you know, we have a weekly, you know, um, company call. Um, where we get like 300 people and, you know, people feel really connected and they feel really part of the same thing and that we're all in it together. And we're all, you know, we have, we have probably 10 to 15 to 20 different, uh, sessions and programs and, you know, how you can do social media better and how you can, you know, be, you know, staying in contact with clients. How can you be developing new clients? You know, how can you be selling properties in this era? What are the best practices on showings, on marketing, or whatever. And, um, you know, the idea is to make everybody better. And everybody's lending a hand, everybody's pitching in. I see, you know, there's so many people every day that are, you know, say, hey, you know, can I lead a session on, you know, there was one yesterday on on Instagram that um, the, the team that leads our um, uh, Toronto office ha- uh, held. And it was fantastic. And, um, you know, I hear so often from people that, you know, they feel blessed to, you know, feel surrounded by, you know, so many wonderful people and they've met a lot of their best friends, you know, at the company. And, you know, it's a place where we, it's kind of like a country club. We really feel like, you know, you can't just be a good agent. You can't just be a producer. You got to be somebody who fits in. And if, you know, we, we've either let go or we've denied access to, top producers because they just would have been a cancer to our culture and we're very protective of it. And we want to make sure that, you know, we continue it and we're, you know, starting to, you know, franchise offices um, around the country now and um, people really are adopting and, and really uh, taking on that, that sense of pride and, you know, wearing the agency hats and t-shirts and, you know, wanting to get the name out there because they feel, and I think rightly so, that it's going to help them. And, I, and you know, it's been proven that that's the case. So, you know, I, I'm grateful for that. Two questions. So how big does the agency want to get? Do you want to get to 10 billion? Do you have a marker or is it just 
you know, you know stay focused, uh, put, keep your head I down. Don't, I, don't be, I don't have an office number. I don't have a, a sales number. I don't have an agent number. I, what I do know is that, um, you know, we'll never be huge in any particular market. We don't want a whole bunch of people tripping over each other, you know, carrying the agency flag. Um, we'll never open an office in a marketplace just because we think it's a marketplace in which we have to be. Um, we'll only open it if we have the right local experts and we, you know, we understand that real estate is a local business. So you've got people, you've got to have people who know what they're doing, um, in each marketplace. And, you know, I'm, uh, I'm hopeful for, and I'm looking forward to the day where, you know, someone who, um, is from Miami, you know, goes to Aspen, you know, during ski season, and you know, decides I love Aspen and I'm thinking about getting a place and they go, you know, I wonder if there's an agency here, you know, and cause you know, those are the guys we use or those are the gals we use in, in Miami or in Scottsdale or in LA or wherever. And they know, you know, like, you know, let's just take O'Melvin and Myers that, you know, if you got in there, then you got to be good and you got to know your shit and you're going to get, you're going to be with a trusted real estate advisor. And it's not just a, you know, a place where you're putting, you know, asses in seats and we're trying to, uh, you know, lease real estate space. You know, this is not a real estate play. This is, uh, this is really trying to give people, you know, good real estate advice. For me, it was always um, staggering that, um, you know, we, we, that the legislature basically allows people who don't really understand the contract, who don't really understand, you know, the transaction to represent people with the largest financial transaction they'll undertake in their lifetime. We're talking millions of dollars being uh, represented by somebody who may know nothing, but, you know, they are married to somebody who, you know, knows wealthy people or they like architecture or, you know, they know they can be, get a big commission or they're an attractive person that can, you know, attract people to them. And, you know, when you don't, when, when, when you don't like we do um, suffer the consequences by having, you know, someone who is impugning your reputation because they don't know what they're doing. It's easy to go, well, you know, yeah, we have some agents who aren't that good, but that's not me. You know, at our brokerage, you know, it's, you know, whatever, I'm the one you should use at our brokerage. I like to think that whoever you use, you're going to get good representation. That's well said. Well said. So, would you guys ever consider acquiring small boutiques or using that as a growth vehicle? Or? I, I, I wouldn't count it out, but I would say it's highly unlikely because it really is a cultural component. And, um, you know, it's, it's much more um, beneficial when it's organic growth where people are choosing to be here because they decided it's what's going to help their career. It's going to help them, you know, with their with their business. When you acquire someone, you basically say you are now us. And, you know, to be us, you, there are certain qualities that it takes. And, you know, those are integrity, professionalism, you know, uh, treating people right. And, um, you know, when you buy a company, you know, you don't necessarily get a group that comply with that. You, you buy the culture that comes with it and you guys being culturally intact. Yeah. That might be a more challenging road for you guys but um i mean we've got you know we've had um you know groups of agents who have you know when for example like 
when Pacific Union was buying or when Compass was buying and, you know, then their company got absorbed and they were like, we don't want to go into this culture or lack of culture. And, you know, they've split off and said, Hey, we want to start this office. Um, you know, that, that's an organic process. And I think, you know, that, that works best for us. All right. Enough about real estate for a minute, Billy. Let's have a, let's have a little fun if we can. Okay. Okay. We'll try. <laughs> we'll try. What's the worst part of your gig? The worst part of my gig, you know, um, <clears throat> it's pleasure pain. I think that it's, um, it's being on call round the clock. Uh, Got to pick up. Where the hell is he? And I, and I take that seriously because I really do feel like not only am I a real estate advisor, but I'm a therapist. You know, this is not only the largest financial transaction they undertake in their lifetime, but it's very emotional. It's the big difference between residential and commercial real estate. It's not about how it pencils. It's how it makes you feel. And, you know, a lot of these buys and sells come as a result of divorces or deaths or births. And, you know, there's a time component and there's a money component. And, um, you know, you got to be there to make somebody feel comfortable. And, and, you know, so that, that's the tough part about it, but it's also the thing I love about it. Cause you know, you get in super deep with someone and, you know, in the deepest, you know, either, uh, darkest moments of their life or the, you know, some of the most celebratory moments of their life. And you really get to be on that ride with them. And I like to be, you know, their, their category in that moment. You know, it's yeah. funny to your point. I mean, I've been on the marketing side of the equation, right? So you guys are my clients. Okay. Yeah. So, and you guys have the same exact, you know, you need, to, you know, someone to talk to too, because you're, you're dealing with the ups and downs and the, the whole psychology. It's a highly emotional business because it's the, the dollars that we're dealing with and, uh, and your commission salespeople for the most part. Um, and it's a, it's not an easy living, you know, uh, and everyone, right. everyone makes it out to be, get your license and, you know, you go make a million bucks in a month, man. It's well, easy. Well, you know? Particularly when, you know, an entry level home is three, $4 million and, you know, $7,500,000 and you're like, okay, I'm good for the year, um, for some people. And, you know, and then of course, you know, complicated for me where, you know, I've got agents who, you know, want to bounce things off of me and I, you know, and I want to be there for as many people as possible. And, you know, in the same way that I want to, um, you know, be there for a client's transaction. I want to be there to, you know, help someone get through a tough situation and mentor them and, you know, help them succeed. All right. I'm going to give you some rapid fire questions. Okay. Finish this sentence. If I wasn't in real estate, I would love to uh, be in hospitality, designing and, uh, and hosting. Okay, cool. Um, if you could invite three people to your dream dinner party, who would be there and what would you serve? Dream dinner party. Well, that's a tough one. Okay. Um, Bill Gates, uh, Oprah Winfrey, and, um, and Brad Pitt. Um, and we would, have, uh, we would have sushi. Nice. <laughs> Good call. Uh, a guilty luxury pleasure that's worth every damn penny. Um, uh, fine wine and good food. Life's too short to drink bad wine. Although I've been really getting into, you know, I've been drinking a lot of wine these days. Um, cause it's I know there's, only, the there's only three days a week, right? There's yesterday, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. There's no weekends or weekdays. Right. And so, you know, every night's a wine night. Um, and 
um, you know, my, my dad used to write for, for Wine Spectator, so I, I inherited his uh, cellar, you know, and all the, all the good old stuff now is kind of gone. And, I, you know, so we have to, like, find these house wines. And so I've been really trying to research that, you know, 20 to 30 $40 range bottle where you can open up, you know, a couple few on a night. Um, and that's been a ton of fun. And I've really discovered some great, great, you know, inexpensive, you know, yeah. considered wine. And that is part of the I fun. Love right? that. I love that. Me but too. You don't really have to spend a ton of money on, on good wine. I've, I, you know what I've been doing the last, like basically a month and a half, but last couple months, maybe a month and a half, all Italy varietals. Yeah. Nothing but, and I'm going deep and trying all kinds like shit that I would have never tried and just getting blown away. And then yeah, it, they're not crazy pricing. I mean, you know, what's a, something I did recently that I, that was really successful for me. And I would imagine it would be the same for you in that regard is, um, I was looking up, uh, you know, I, I did this on wine.com. It was the easiest one for me to do it on it seemed, but I'm sure there's other portals where you can do it as well, where I would search for, let's say under $30, 90 point reviews or more. And, you know, I got 24 bottles, you know, single bottles, one of each. And, um, you know, and then I went through the, I'm still going through them actually, um, and found, you know, what do I like? What do I want more of? Um, and you know, Italians, you can, I love the Italian wines. I'm, I'm a big cab drinker and I like the, you know, I like the Nellos and the Barolos and, um, but yeah, super Tuscans. All right. Favorite band. I know it's difficult and it's probably a bad question for you because you've your background. Um, but do you have a favorite band or? Oh my gosh. You know, um, yes, I'll give you a favorite band today. My favorite band today is Glass Animals. I love the music, but the thing that makes them my favorite band is that um, unlike a lot of, you know, sort of electronic music, it's not that engaging, not that fun to watch a live performance. And their performance is staggeringly captivating. Um, I've been three times, I've been big. I've been at the Sour Bowl, I've been at the, uh, I've seen them at the, the um, Shrine. I just missed them at Trudor, Trudor, like two days before we went to home, safe at home. Um, and they're just dynamic on stage. So that would be my favorite band today. That's a good good pick. I would never guess. So where do you live, Billy? Can you tell us, like, live, describe your home? I live in Westwood. Um, I live in this 1940 modern that I took down to the studs, uh, gutted and enlarged. Um, it was a house that I loved. I just, it was the first lot bought in that tract. And, um, I loved the home. I, like I could tell that it would be something that would enhance your life. And I tried to sell it to like 10 different clients. And, um, I was, um, getting married and buy a house and um i said to my fiance at the time you know like you know let's go looking at houses you know we were kind of looking in different areas and not here at all i go there's this one house i wanted to see because it just, it just strikes me um and she saw she went yeah that's our house and i you know, had that house since 03 um and it just makes me feel great it's got great lights it's got great windows it's, I, I love the house all right, good deal. So I know we're, we're we're getting close on time here. So I want to ask you a couple more. But what do you do for fun, like outside of? We know you, you like red wine, of course, and uh, architecture and developing and and restaurants and hospitality. What what do you do, like for just 
I got an hour to myself or I want to do what, what, what does that look like? Um, well, I like being with my kids, um, you know, whether that's, you know, I'm, I've been doing these urban hikes these days, you know, cause you can't get up in the mountains and, and that's one of the things I do like doing is, is, is hiking. Um, but we've been doing these urban hikes where we meant like, you know, power th walk through or run through, you know, UCLA or the veterans administration, or, um, I did Brentwood park the other day and, you know, an hour long, you know, maybe five, six miles. Um, and I've been going with my daughter, um, or my son or my wife and, um, that's super fun. Um, you know, I like swimming. I like getting into the water and the ocean. Fishing is like one of my favorite things. My grandfather owned a tackle shop and, you know, grew up fishing. And in fact, we're going on a houseboating trip in a, in a month. Can't wait to do that. All right. Some closing thoughts. Um, what two pieces of advice would you give your younger self today, Billy? Um, hmm. I guess I would say um, don't become a town agent. Um, I would say, um, invest in real estate, buy everything you can and try not to sell anything you can. Um, um, you know, seek out the smartest people you can and try to learn from them. Very nice. Basketball or baseball? Basketball. Lakers or Clippers? Lakers. I grew up here. And, me too. Uh, I don't know. Believe me, I'm 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 diehard. I do like the Clippers, but and as pathetic as the Lakers have been, um, I, I'm a Laker fan. Punk rock or blues? Blues. Mm. Um, Beverly Hills or Malibu? Malibu. Nice. All right. Do you have a favorite book? Um, you know, one of my favorite books, um, was written by Tony Shea, um, called, now let's space on what it's, um, oh my gosh, do I have it right here? Hold on. I'm spacing on it right now. Um, delivering happiness, delivering happiness, Tony Shea, guy who bought Zappos and turned it into what it was. And, you know, the guy really, he understood culture and the personality of people being there and in customer service. Um, I, I love that. But I also like the book it's called, it's called The Gold Standard. Um, great book. Just also learning, you know, like how to, you know, hospitality and how to treat people and how, you know, no one is above anyone else. And I love their, their motto or their credo of, you know, um, uh, it's, it's, people serving people something like that where it's you know the fact that you're a guest means you're no more important than the people who are servicing you we're all humans and we all need to respect one another who thought up the agency who was that you that uh, was mauricio it was um and it was um you know it resonated with me because it made me feel like you know my agency days and yeah, I figured we like would... the cia and yeah, yeah we had both actually been looking to start a company um, we had both tried to start a company before each other, um, and those never quite came together. And um, I had put together a, a networking group that had about 20 agents in it. It was all kind of the more youthful, um, similar thinking, you know, from the same cloth, fun, good people, uh, agents. And Mauricio was one of the people I'd invited into the group. 
And um, we got actually to come to know each other through the group. And one day he called me and he said, I want to talk to you about something. You know, can you come over to my house and we'll shoot some pool? And um, I, we had never talked about starting a company ever. And I knew exactly what he was going to ask me. I don't know why, but I did. And, you know, he said, do you want to start the company? I said, if we can run it like a law firm or a talent agency, then I'm in. And he had this name. He was, what do you think about it? And I said, that's a great name. And um, we were, you know, we were off and running. I mean, it, we, we had a year of gestation where we were planning everything, and, you know, getting the logo and, you know, trademarking the name and doing all those things. And um, he's been an incredible partner. I mean, he's been extremely formidable, formidable and, and impressive. And I'm lucky and grateful to have him as my partner. That's a great story. So fun. No, okay. So I've said this, you know, in jest and joking, but I think you guys should do it for real. So Santiago and Mauricio, I've said now it's Billy, okay? You guys should have a bet, an, an annual standing bet, Jan 1, who's going to sell the most real estate for the year? And bet a buck, it's a dollar, you know? And and have a gentleman's dollar bet. Who's going to come out on top this year amongst the, you know? I, I you know, Mauricio was the long-standing champ on that. Santiago's unseated him for the last two years. I'm hoping next year's mine. Yeah, that's why it'd be fun to do it. And then you, what you could do is invite the other agents to, to join in and, and, you know, give the pot to charity or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Billy, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And uh, I wish you continued success on, on your journey with the agency and in life and how this new world that we're living in will, you know, will uncover and unveil what's next for all of us. Um, hopefully it's good, knock on wood. And um, let's drink some good red wine sometime and let's do this again soon. Well, thanks for having me. And I hope, you know, maybe in six months we can check back in, have some wine and see, you know, where the world went from where we are today. And hopefully it's all rosy and sunny and good. Yes. Right on. All right, Billy, be well and we'll talk soon. Stay safe, stay healthy and farewell. And thank you for having me. You got it. And that wraps up this episode. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you found some value. Please share, subscribe, and leave a review. And find us on iTunes and your favorite podcast provider. Until next time.